Well, good evening. I um, trust you're having a good week. Oh man, the clock says five o'clock. Wow, I get to speak for a long time. But you know, thank you for thank you for coming out tonight or for tuning in uh, if you're online. Uh, we're continuing our series on evangelism in John's Gospel, and uh, this is the outline that we're following. Just to remind you, John chapter one. It's all about the witness of John the Baptist, and it's here. Uh, we're developing biblical principles of evangelism. Then we'll move into John chapter 3, which is Jesus' witness to Nicodemus. And there we'll develop the theology of the gospel. And then in John chapter 4, we have Jesus' witness to the Samaritan woman. And here we see Jesus' practice of evangelism. So there we'll learn from the master evangelist. So tonight we're continuing in John uh, chapter 1. And we're going to learn some more principles of evangelism. Now, these are the principles we've developed uh, so far. So there's eight of them. So number one, so the first four were from uh, the second lesson, and the next lot of four from last week's lesson. So we're sent to witness. That was number one. This establishes the crucial point that we're called by the Lord to share the gospel. Number two, the contents of our witness. In order to be evangelizing, we need to be talking about Jesus Christ, it's not just casual chit-chat or small talk. Number three, the manner of our witness. Okay, the spotlight is to be on Christ, not on us. Okay, our witness must center not on our experience, but on the fact of Christ. Number four, the goal of our witness. We want people to believe and come to Christ as Savior, which means we need to challenge people to make a decision, remembering no one can be neutral with Jesus Okay, number five, this is from last week's lesson, a living witness. Okay, opportunities to share the gospel will increase as we live godly lives in our godless society. Number six, a witness not to self. Okay, we must refuse to focus our witness on ourselves. We are not the answer. We need to point others away from human agents and toward Jesus Christ. Number seven, a witness to Christ. We're to look for opportunities to speak about Jesus Christ. He is to be the focus of our witness. And then number eight, a call to repentance and faith. We must humbly point out to people the truth that they are guilty before God, they have broken God's law, and are worthy of his just condemnation. So they are the principles that we have considered thus far. And this is forming our evangelism foundations. And tonight we're going to add four more principles. And uh, I will say this, there has been a little bit of overlap already, uh, which makes sense because the same principles are at play every time we share the gospel. And in our text for tonight, some of the already considered principles are quite obviously present. So I could draw out probably those same eight um, quite uh, easily, but that's not my intention to go over that again. So I will tend to focus primarily on new principles, although some overlap is unavoidable. So our text for tonight is John chapter 1, verses 29 through to 34. And I'd like to read that together. Now, verse 29 is a very famous verse. So John chapter 1, let's read from verse 29. The word of God says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin 
of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare records saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the spirit descending and remaining on him. The same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the son of God. Amen. Let's pray. And then we'll jump into the text. Father, as we study uh, your word, please help us uh, to understand it. Please help us to be receptive and uh, help us to be equipped uh, for the work of evangelism you have called us to. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, something that I uh, enjoy and appreciate is watching someone who is an expert in their particular field. You know, I love to watch a talented musician. Uh, I'm hopeless at music, so I really appreciate music. And recently, Emma and I saw a performance, and their talent just blew my mind. Uh, when, when I was on the tools, I admired the work of skilled tradesmen. Uh, I wasn't a skilled tradesman. I was just a tradesman. So I really appreciated skilled tradesmen, and it always amazed me how easy they made their craft look. Okay, if you watch a really good bricklayer, it makes it look so easy. Try and do it. <laughs> it's not easy. But perhaps my favorite thing to watch, okay, and this reveals what I like, um, I love to watch an elite sports person. Okay, I love to hear them talk through their process and then they execute it perfectly. Um, they're not the greatest role models in the world, but I love to listen and watch okay, Tiger Woods and Shane Warne do their thing. Okay, it was incredible to watch the best in action. They can talk you through what they are thinking, what they want to achieve, and then they can execute it perfectly. Whereas like, I can have a vision of what I want to achieve and I do the complete opposite. Okay, so it's incredible okay, to watch. Now it's certainly a privilege to watch a master at work in any field. And we have that privilege in our text as we watch John the Baptist evangelize. He is one of eight witnesses in the Gospel of John. Do we remember the eight witnesses? Pastor Matthews isn't allowed to answer yet. I was going to bring chocolate tonight to see if that helped us, but I forgot. Can we remember any of the eight witnesses from John's gospel? God the Father. Yes. God the Son. God the Spirit. Yes, we got them three. Yes. The Word of God. Yes. What's that? That's four. We're halfway there. The disciples. Yes, that's five. Jesus works. Yes. John the Baptist. Yes. One more. Yes, that's right. The men and women who encountered Jesus. So there's the eight witnesses. And the purpose of these witnesses is for them to give evidence, okay, confirming the central purpose of the gospel. The central purpose of the gospel is to prove that Jesus is the Christ and that people might believe in him. And where do we find the central purpose of the gospel of John? What's the reference? John 20. That's right. 30. And 31. If you memorize those verses and tell me like two weeks, I will get you a chocolate, okay? Let's see if that works. Now, John the Baptist, uh, although he's not as impressive as a member of the Trinity, nevertheless, he was a remarkable witness. 
You need to understand, John was a prophet. In fact, he was the only prophet in Israel. He was the first prophet for 400 years. And everyone understood that John was a prophet. Matthew 21, 26 makes that clear. And since he was a prophet, this made him a credible and highly significant witness. Because as a prophet, he spoke the word of God. Now, furthermore, John the Baptist came from a priestly family. And this gave him extra credibility because the priests were revered, they were honored, they were respected throughout the land of Israel. So this gave him a hearing amongst the people. And another component that makes John unique and gives his witness credibility is he lived completely apart from the religious system of Israel. So he was not merely a product of the religious system of the time. He was not and indoctrinated students. And all of this made him the most credible, believable, and trustworthy voice in Israel. And hence, it's fitting that he's the first witness in the Gospel of John. Now, from verse 19, which we considered okay, last week, there are three days which John bears witness, and it's the three different groups. So on day one, he says, He is here. On day two, he says, look at him. And day three, he says, follow him. On day one, it was to the Jewish religious leaders. On day two, it's to the crowd of people. And on day three, it's to some of John's own disciples. So three days, three messages, three different groups. And last week, we saw that Jesus is the word. Okay? And John was the voice. We too should be the voice. That's the essence of the message on day one. But on day two, we learn that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And John pointed people to him. And what I'd like to do is to work our way through the text. But instead of the principles forming the outline, I would like to exegete the text under two headings and then use the principles as application points. So it's a slightly different approach compared to the last two weeks. Okay, so let's take a journey through this text, keeping our destination in mind, okay, which is principles to help us in our evangelism. So our first point, and this is the longer point, is what I've called the declaration. Now this text commences and concludes with very confident declarations about Jesus. They form bookends of this particular witness. You notice that verse 29 commences the next day. So this is the following day after John witnessed to the religious leaders. This is day two. And on this day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Now talk about a perfect witnessing opportunity. He had been talking about Jesus to everybody. And here he was. And this was certainly providentially arranged and it couldn't be ignored. And although we won't get a situation like that. Okay, Jesus isn't just going to come walking toward us. That would be a wonderful opportunity Okay, to talk about him. But we should be asking the Lord to give us opportunities to share the gospel. Okay, that, that should be something we ask regularly. And then taking them when providence brings certain people or situations into your life. 
Okay, this is certainly an important element of our witness. Pleading with the Lord to orchestrate opportunities. You know, at Christmas time last year when my family and I were back in Grafton, someone was telling me that he had been asking the Lord for opportunities to share the gospel. And as he was driving in town, he actually drove past the church, there was a hitchhiker. And he drove straight past him. Uh, but, but then he felt like he'd missed the opportunity that he had asked for. So credit to him, um, he turned around. And he picked up this particular hitchhiker and he brought the conversation to Christ. Now the guy ended up coming to church and as we spoke to him, he actually came when I preached. So that was a blessing. His, his life was a real mess. Like it, was, it was tragic. And now I don't know if he ever come back. But I do know that the gospel seed has been planted in his life. Okay, and that happened because this particular guy prayed for an opportunity and took the opportunity. And I wanted to share that illustration because it's a real life illustration to an ordinary guy. So we're not just talking about you know, John Wesley or Charles Spurgeon. Or, this, is, this is a farmer in Grafton. Okay, so it's a real life illustration. And, and I do wonder how often... We don't have opportunities because we don't ask. Okay, I wonder how often we have not because we ask not. Now John, as was his consistent practice, he diverted all of the attention to Jesus. And this has already come out in our existing principles. The focus is to be on Christ, not us. And John exemplifies this principle. And, and here he says, he says, behold, or, or look, you know, perhaps he points, here comes Jesus. Okay, this was after Jesus' baptism, after his time of temptation, but now he was back. And as he made his way toward John, you know, I, I sensed that there was a real excitement in his voice and mannerisms. Look, here he is. Here's the one I've been telling you about. Okay, look at verse 30. Okay, he is the one that John was talking about yesterday. He is the one who is to be preferred above me. He is the one whose sandal I am not worthy to unbuckle. He is the one that I've been pointing you to. And the Baptist makes an interesting statement to close verse 30. He says, for he was before me. Now, how are we to understand that comment? John was older than Jesus. John was six months older. And yet he speaks of Jesus being before him. Now, it seems best for this to be understood as a declaration of the deity of Jesus. It speaks of his eternality. Go back to verse 1 okay, of this uh, particular gospel. And his pre-existence meant that Jesus took absolute precedence. Even though he appeared on the stage of history after John the Baptist. Okay, and John was very deliberate to ensure that at this moment Jesus was in the spotlight. And it's at this time that he makes this famous declaration. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. And my friend that is an incredible declaration. The question is how would this declaration being understood by the crowd? Well, I think it's highly unlikely that they understood much about the second phrase, okay, which taketh away the sins of the world and what this meant in regards to Jesus. You and I have a much greater understanding since we have the complete scriptures. 
Now, it certainly speaks of the cross, but I think it's doubtful that this was in the mind of the crowd when it was initially spoken. But the first phrase, behold the Lamb of God, that would have triggered an avalanche of meaning in the minds of a Jewish audience. The Lamb was something they were very familiar with. Now, it's hard to determine whether John had a narrow or a broad concept in mind when he made this declaration. But think about what could have instantly sprung into the minds of the crowds. Probably the first image would have been the Passover lamb, since Passover was actually approaching. Can we read of it in John chapter 2 and verse 13? And it's possible that the Passover lambs had just been brought into Jerusalem as John makes this declaration. Every Passover, thousands of lambs would be brought into the city of Jerusalem from Bethlehem. And with that backdrop in mind, John declares, behold, the lamb. Now, the first Passover is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 12. And there we read of how God delivered Israel from slavery by sending the angel of death to slay all the firstborn. But for those who applied the blood of the lamb to their doorpost, the angel of the angel of death would pass over them. And there are many links between Jesus and the Passover. But there were also daily sacrifices. Lambs were sacrificed every day for the sin of the people, every morning and every evening. Okay, this practice is spelled out in Exodus 29, verses 38 and 39. So day by day, year by year, lambs were sacrificed as a perpetual reminder of the people's need of forgiveness. So that the very morning of the day when John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, a lamb was sacrificed, as was another lamb that evening. And this too could have been on the minds of the people. This declaration also was undoubtedly an allusion to Isaiah 53 in verse 6. Okay? Isaiah 53 spells out the suffering servant. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, the Jews were well acquainted with this portion of Scripture, and no doubt some made the connection. And then there's that great scene in Exodus, sorry, not Exodus, Genesis 22, a very well-known account. I'm sure you remember the story at God's command. Abraham, he'd gone up Mount Moriah to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. Now, noticing the fire and wood, Isaac, being an intelligent young boy, notices that something's missing and he asks a question. And he says, where, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's, that's a very good question. And Abraham famously replied, God will provide himself a lamb. And in that particular situation, God did provide a lamb. But this same question echoes throughout the whole Old Testament. It's clear that a lamb must be offered to take away sin. But where is the lamb? Okay, people realize that no mere animal could take the place of a human being in bearing the wrath of God for that person's sin. So no doubt the question was asked, where is the lamb? And understand, on this day beside the Jordan River, John the Baptist declares, the lamb is here. God has provided 
the Lamb. So it's clear that this is a monumental declaration, one that's full of deep and significant meaning. The Lamb was finally here. And there's actually a notable progression throughout the Old Testament. And it culminates with Jesus as the Lamb of God. One writer makes this observation. He says, at first, the rule was a lamb for each sinful person. This is why Abraham needed a lamb in the place of Isaac. Later, a lamb could be offered for a whole family, as in the Passover. Then under the old covenant, a lamb could be offered for the entire nation of Israel. Finally, Jesus Christ came as the lamb for the whole world. As he was the son of God, his blood was of infinite worth, capable of paying the debt of every sinner. And it's this that John is declaring. Jesus is the lamb that we have been waiting for. He is the one who has come to take away the sin of the world. And this reveals to us the purpose of the incarnation. Even at the dawn of Jesus' ministry, we have words declaring his destiny. He's heading to the cross. Jesus is the ultimate and perfect fulfillment of every aspect of the sacrificial lamb. And it is Jesus who has dealt with the sin of the world. Notice it is sin singular. With the sense being that the entire guilt of humanity, what was collected into one and placed upon Jesus. And you and I, we can't begin to comprehend how crushing that must have been. Especially for Jesus who knew no sin. He's perfect and then he's got sin imputed on him. And then the father's wrath was unleashed. Okay, this is how the sin of humanity can be taken away. Notice it also says the sin of the world. Okay, Jesus died for all. Jew, Gentile, all who have ever lived. It's not just a select few ordained in eternity past. There's no limited atonement. Okay, such a view requires you to jump through hermeneutical hoops and apply different definitions to terms such as world. But the consistent testimony of the Bible is that Jesus died for all. And think about that. That reveals the infinite worth and value of Christ's work on the cross. Okay, it's sufficient for all, but only effective for those who believe. But understand that the sacrifice of the Lamb of God has the capacity to forgive every sin and cleanse every sinner. It's big enough for the whole world. And that includes your sin. And that includes my sin. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who deals with the sin of mankind. That's John's testimony. This is what he's sharing with others. This is his public declaration and we could do far worse than emulate it. Now, it's true, the image of the lamb is not going to be as effective in our time in Sydney. But the essential elements are certainly worth emulation as we seek to witness for Christ. So having made the declaration, John quickly gives a defense. And it pronounces the authority and rationale behind his declaration. And this is our second point. The defense. 
Now perhaps John sensed that some were skeptical of his claims. How had he arrived at such a conclusion? Was this something from God or was this something made up in the wilderness? Okay, John, you're starting to lose the plot. Too much honey, too much sunshine. Okay, what, what's the authority behind your declaration? How can John be so convinced and so certain? And he goes on to answer these potential questions and objections from verse 31. But he begins somewhat surprisingly. He says, and I knew him not. And this is repeated in verse 34. So there was a time when John didn't know Jesus. Now, what are we to make of that declaration? Okay, here's John. He's saying, I didn't recognize him at first. And if you know your Bible, you'll be thinking, well, wait a minute. Weren't they cousins? Okay, their mums, Elizabeth and Mary, they were related. Surely they talked. Surely they had something to do with each other. Mary and Elizabeth knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Surely John would have been told. So how we'd understand this? Well, one commentator offered this lengthy explanation. I've included it in your notes. Okay, and this is what he says. He says, yes, he would have known that Jesus is the Son of God. But you have Jesus 30 years of complete obscurity. 30 years in a carpenter shop. Which would raise some pretty serious questions, wouldn't it? I mean, John's trying to say he's the Son of God. He's God in human flesh. He's the Messiah. Nothing's happened. It would be easy for doubt to come in. Even later in the ministry of John, after it became clear who Jesus was, John began to doubt about whether Jesus was actually the Messiah. Because even after he started his ministry, he didn't do anything. He didn't conquer anything. He didn't take over anything. So John sent some of his disciples to Jesus and they said, John wants to know if you're really the Messiah. And Jesus said, tell them about the things I've done. Tell them about the works. So John had questions. They aren't questions because of a lack of information, but because Jesus wasn't acting the way he thought a Messiah should act. Either obscure in the first part, or increasingly hated in his public ministry, hence questions arose. So here John is just admitting that he didn't recognize him in the full sense as conveyed by the Greek verb. I didn't recognize him in the full, deep sense. Okay, That's the sense of this declaration. Okay, and this was quite common. Okay, Jesus wasn't the Messiah that people were expecting. Everyone wanted him to overthrow Rome. Okay, and, and this is evident through Jesus' entire ministry. But understand with John, this has now changed. And Jesus' baptism was the moment that it was confirmed for John. He had been told by the Lord that the Spirit would descend like a dove. Okay, this was the divine word given to the prophet. And this happens. It's recorded in Matthew 3, Mark 1, and Luke 3. And this confirmed to John that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the Lamb of God. And now John the Baptist declares in verse 34, I saw and bear record. It doesn't come out in English, but in, in the Greek, these are in the perfect tense. So that conveys certainty beyond a doubt. The proof was given 
And John believed the proof. It was a settled conviction. So he was now convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. That Jesus was the Lamb of God. This had been settled at Jesus' baptism. And the people had no reason to doubt his witness because he was the prophet. God had told him what to look for in identifying Messiah. And hence there's no good reason to doubt the declaration of John the Baptist. And further evidence to confirm the veracity of his claim was that it wasn't denied by Jesus. Jesus didn't deny what John said. When John referred to him as the Lamb of God, Jesus didn't deny it. When John referred to him as the Son of God, Jesus didn't deny it. And if this wasn't true, it would have been passionately denied by Jesus. Jesus is a Jew, and if he's not God, that's, that's blasphemous. And yet it was accepted, which is the ultimate seal of approval of John's witness. And having the authenticity of John's witness confirmed by Jesus, we would certainly do well to emulate it. And I'd like to draw out four principles of evangelism from John's example. And it's with these that we'll close. So principle number one, our witness needs to be verbal. Okay, this has come out through our series, but I believe it's worth stating as a standalone principle because there's a school of thought that our testimony is all that matters and we don't need to speak. But we learn from John that speaking is necessary. Now, please understand, this in no way undermines the importance of our personal testimony. When it comes to testimony or speaking, it's not an either-or scenario, but it's a both-and. Okay, we need a quality testimony and we need to speak. Okay, we cannot be silent and merely rely on our way of life. John's example is clear. Okay, verse 29, he saith. Verse 30, I said. Verse 32, bear record saying. Okay, so John suddenly spoke. And this is necessary in order to be effective in sharing the gospel. And the key argument okay, with this particular point is Romans 10.17. Faith cometh by hearing the word of God. It needs to be spoken. But there are some other considerations for us to think through. If we merely rely on our life, okay, how we're living, but we don't speak about Jesus, there are other religions who strive to live a moral life. We live in an area that's Islamic. Practicing Muslims will care about personal holiness. So if we never declare why we live a certain way, we could be completely misunderstood and misrepresented. And I don't want people to look at my moral life and think, well, hey, he's a Muslim or some other religion because I've never spoken up. Furthermore, a holy life ought to inevitably lead to conversation. Okay, if we do something or don't do something, someone will normally ask, why? why? Why won't you do that? Or why did you do that? No one else does. And we should talk about Christ at that particular point. We shouldn't say, oh, I don't know, just, just do it. Okay? That's our opportunity. And also, okay, if Jesus is so precious to us, okay, we're living for him, how can we be silent about him because we talk about the things that we love. So the Bible is clear. Although our life is integral, it's not enough by itself. We need to speak. We need to have conversations. Speech is 
the primary evangelistic method. So our witness is to be verbal. Principle number two, sin must be addressed in our witness. Sin has become like a swear word in our culture. It's not socially acceptable to call somebody a sinner or deem their particular behaviors as sinful. Okay, refer to a homosexual as someone in sin and see what happens. Okay, and hence, there can be a very real temptation to talk about Jesus, but never mention sin. And there can be attempts to evangelize and focus on positivity rather than what's deemed negativity, sin, judgment, death, and wrath. But here's the thing. You cannot share the gospel faithfully without talking about sin and judgment. It's not the biblical gospel if these things are withheld. Now, sure, it will be offensive. Sure, people may get angry. And I think the key there is if people get offended and angry at the gospel, that's okay. We don't want them to get offended from how we have come across. Okay, there's, a, there's a huge difference there. We want to make sure it's the gospel doing the offending, not our approach. But we need to understand we are not presenting the complete gospel if we refuse to talk about sin. Because think about it. It's the bad news of sin and judgment that makes the good news of the gospel so good. And in order for someone to embrace the gospel, they need to understand that they need it. Okay, if they're not convinced of sin, they say, well, I don't need the gospel. I'm not a sinner. Okay, and one will only be aware of their need if they grasp their sinfulness. Okay, how can we present a message of light if we refuse to talk about darkness? How can we talk about the way to be found if we won't mention that people are lost? How can we speak of the gospel as the solution if we won't speak about the problem? So those that we speak to need to understand that man okay, are sinners. And that God is angry with sin and must punish sin. That cannot be withheld in a faithful gospel witness. Okay, again, look at John's example. He speaks of the lamb. It's about sacrifice. That's about bloodshed. And he mentions the sin of the world. So this is required in our gospel presentation. We need to guard against okay, being so influenced by our society that we water down sin to, to be something trivial or, or we ignore it completely as we share the gospel. Because the gospel is only good news to those who grasp they are sinners. And hence that needs to be addressed clearly. This is a crucial ingredient in being a faithful witness for Christ. Principle number three, Christ dealing with sin is required in our witness. And this follows on from the previous point. Having established man's sinfulness, we need to present the solution. The solution being the death of Christ. It's the shedding of blood. Christ's substitutionary sacrifice is our message. And we dare not move away from the atonement obtained by Christ's shed blood. And yet I would suggest this is possible if we're not careful. Because it is very easy for us to focus on the benefits of the gospel and not the gospel itself. Especially in the times that we live. 
Okay, we, we can focus on Jesus helping overcome addictions. We, we can focus on Jesus healing broken relationships. Jesus will fix your marriage. Jesus will give purpose and meaning. Okay, we talk about Jesus working miracles. And, and these things may well happen, but understand they're not the gospel. They are potential benefits. But they're not the message of the gospel. Okay, we can't get them confused. And we can't forsake speaking about the cross. We can't ignore the shed blood. As one writer said, Christianity is a bloody religion. The blood of Christ cleanses us of all sin. So we need to be careful that we don't try and make things more palatable to our society that we can end up leaving the heartbeat of the gospel out of our discussion. So we need to understand that the gospel will not be palatable. It will cause offense. It will be a stumbling block. Okay, well, we're, we're told that. And yet, like John the Baptist, we need to speak about the Lamb of God. It speaks of sacrifice, of bloodshed, of atonement, of death, because that is how sin is dealt with it's dealt with by the work of christ at the cross and that cannot be neglected so we need to be careful that we don't present the benefits of the gospel rather than the gospel itself as the apostle paul said we are to preach christ crucified that's principle three and principle four i've called the work of god in our witness okay with john god needed to work in order for him to believe. Okay, he didn't know for sure that Jesus was Messiah until God intervened and gave him the sign at Jesus' baptism. Now we need to be careful making direct links between us and John. But there's a biblical principle that I believe is a fair inference from this. And it's crucial in our witnessing. God needed to work in John's life for him to comprehend it all. And as we seek to share the gospel with others, okay, first of all, we need the Holy Spirit okay, to work. We, we need to be filled by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us to know what to say in any given situation. The Holy Spirit gives us the courage to say it. But we also need the Holy Spirit to work in the heart of those who are hearing. Because here's the thing, and initially this may sound super discouraging. I promise you it's not. You could present the perfect gospel presentation. The content could be flawless. It's relatable. It's delivered persuasively, lovingly, and graciously. Maybe you even have a PowerPoint. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't work, it will be in vain. Okay? If the Holy Spirit doesn't convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, one will never respond to the gospel. Now, it's man's responsibility to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit... But without the Spirit working, our evangelism will be vain. We need God to work. And this is liberating. And this is why this is actually positive. The results are not our responsibility. We, we don't have to burden ourselves with the results. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't care about our approach in sharing the gospel. Otherwise, this whole series is a waste of time. You know, we should strive to do our best. But ultimately... We can't save anybody. That's not our job. What's our job? Our job is to plant the seed. Our job is to water the seed and pray that God would give the increase. Pray that they would respond to the work of God. 
But we need the Holy Spirit to be working as we witness. That is the fourth and final principle. So there are four more principles to help us with our evangelizing. And as we leave, may we be praying for opportunities to share the gospel this week. And may we, like John the Baptist, with God's help, point people to Christ confidently and share the gospel with conviction. Amen. Now let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for this uh, portion of scripture. Thank you for what it teaches us uh, about evangelism, uh, which is uh, our topic at hand. Uh, There is much uh, for us to glean. Uh, But Lord, please help us to to also see uh, that the glorious theology and doctrine that's found here jesus christ is the lamb of god and uh, our sin can be dealt with uh, because of christ and uh, that's that's very good news uh, for us christians our, our sins have been uh, taken away uh, that they've been uh, dealt with and that's that's a tremendous uh, blessing and and may that reality uh, be fueling our evangelistic zeal uh, please keep us safe As we travel home, please grant to us opportunities throughout the rest of this week uh, to share Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name.